place when we have tea and coffee. But we're going to uh, continue in our series that we're doing in Genesis. So if you want to uh, either follow on the screen or open the pew Bibles, we're going to Genesis chapter 21, beginning at verse 8. It's on page 21 in the pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 21, beginning at verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Earlier the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with a boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me, or my children, or my descendants. Show to me, and the country where you are living as an alien, the same kindness that I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle, and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. One of the things that happens when a church decides it's going to work its way through a book in a series for preaching is that preachers end up with passages that they would never have picked given the free choice. 
And it's not the controversial ones and the difficult ones. Preachers like difficult passages because it gives you something to get your teeth into. It's passages like the one that we've got tonight, which just seems to be a couple of random incidents in the life of Abraham. Interesting if you're an Old Testament scholar or if you're an historian, but of what relevance is it to you and me today? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us a clue. In uh, 1 Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's using another story from the Old Testament to illustrate what he says. He's talking about the time when the Israelites were in the desert with Moses. And when he's finished using that illustration, he gives this principle as to how to deal with Old Testament passages. He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So in these stories, which seem to be very remote, a million miles away from where we are, they're actually examples and warnings for us. And the simplest way of getting into them is really to look at the characters, the people that were involved, to see what happened to them, how they reacted, and what the result was. Because although this is 4,000 years ago, people don't change all that much in their basic attitudes and behaviour. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And maybe as you're reading the Bible on your own, you come across these Old Testament passages. It's a technique that you can use to get into it for yourself. We're going to look at the three main characters in this story and see what lessons, what warnings, what examples they give to us. Let's start with Abraham. Now, Abraham is visited by Abimelech, the king of Gerar, and his war leader, Phicol. I don't know why this war leader guy gets a mention Um, He didn't seem to play any particular part in the story. It may be that Abimelech's a bit nervous of Abraham and brings along a kind of bodyguard to uh, make sure there isn't any trouble. Now, Abimelech's come to visit Abraham because he's got a problem. Abimelech knows that Abraham's God is a powerful God. In those days, all the different tribes and rulers and, and factions, they all had their own gods. And the idea was, whose God was the most powerful God? Whose God could make things happen? And you were wary of someone whose God was powerful. And Abimelech knew Abraham's God was powerful because Abimelech had had an experience of Abraham's God. It was in chapter 20. We looked at it a while ago. Abraham pretends that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister. Abimelech sees Sarah and takes Sarah into his harem. And then God visits Abimelech in a dream and warns him of the danger of what he's done. And all the, uh, the women in Abimelech's community over that period of time are not able to have children. And when Abimelech hands Sarah back, along with a, uh, a big sort of um, compensation payment, then Abraham prays for Abimelech and this infertility is cured and things go back to normal. So Abimelech had an experience of Abraham's God and he knows Abraham's God is a God who can make things happen. And he sees Abraham's God blessing Abraham. Again, it was fairly obvious when somebody's God was blessing somebody because their flocks and their herds increased. That's how you knew what somebody's wealth was. They didn't have money in the bank because they didn't have banks and they hadn't invented money. But flocks and herds, sheep and goats, they showed your wealth. And Abimelech sees Abraham increasing in wealth. His God is blessing him in everything that he does. 
And maybe at the back of Abimelech's mind is, if his herds are increasing, where is he going to get the extra land from? Is he going to be coming into my territory? We're going to end up at war with one another? And Abimelech wants to be on good terms with Abraham because Abraham's God is a powerful God who is blessing him. But Abimelech's got a problem. And the problem is Abraham cannot be trusted. If Abraham lied about his wife, what else might he lie about? You see, here's the lesson about Abraham. It's possible to be a person of great faith, to step out on a big journey, and yet not wholly trust God and use dishonest ways of trying to make up for that. You see, Abraham trusts God to guide him. He leads his his home, he travels thousands of miles and he goes to a new country, but he doesn't trust him to protect him and his wife. The business of passing his wife off as his sister was not just a one-off. We've got two instances of it recorded with Pharaoh down in Egypt, with Abimelech in Canaan. But when Abraham's explaining himself to Abimelech, this is what he says. He says, when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, Sarah, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And so Abraham is saying to God, God, I trust you. I'll follow you everywhere, but I'll make the arrangements for keeping us safe because I don't trust you to do that. And I will lie about that. That doesn't matter. I'll sort it. And so Abimelech solves his problem, wanting to be on good terms with Abraham, but not really trusting Abraham. And they swear a treaty. Because Abimelech figures if Abraham has sworn by his God that he will keep his word. And while they're doing it, Abraham brings up a test case about the well at Beersheba. But you notice, because of his dishonesty, he can't just say, yeah, I did the well. He sets aside the seven ewe lambs and says, take this as a token. Because once your reputation for honesty is gone, it's very hard to prove that you're being honest in anything at all. But they sort it out. And Abraham remains on good terms with this guy. Does any of that ring any bells with you? Do you see gaps in your faith? Things where, yes, I trust you, God, for this, but actually this, I'm going to sort out for myself. Yes, God, I've trusted my life to you, but I'm going to choose what exams I take. I'm going to choose what job I do. I'm going to choose what friends I have, because I'm not convinced that the things that you will pick are the things that I want. Yeah, I've got faith in you for some parts of my life, but not necessarily for all parts. If that's the way that you and I are, we're in the same situation as Abraham. There's one warning to us. Let's look at another character. Let's look at Hagar. Hagar's interest, she's a woman who had an incredibly dramatic experience of God and then to all intents and purposes forgot about it. You go back 17 years. Now, Ishmael is 14 years older than Isaac. Isaac is being weaned. 
moving from baby food to adult food. They had a big celebration to mark that occasion. It was part of the cultural things. They did it when the child was about three. So back about 17 years when Hagar is expecting Ishmael and Sarah gets jealous and Hagar is driven away into the desert just like in the story tonight. And she's rescued by God. A God I suspect she hardly knows. She's given promises by God for the son that she will have. But when she finds herself in the same situation again, she's forgotten what happened before. She doesn't trust God. She doesn't call out to God. She doesn't claim God's promises. She just goes out into the desert and sits down and waits to die. And once again, it's God who takes the initiative. Interestingly, the, the voice from heaven says that God heard Ishmael's cries or prayers. And it's a, it's a play on the name. Ishmael means God hears or God notices. We have a saying in everyday life. It says, God helps those who help themselves. Theologically, it couldn't be more wrong. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Those who can do nothing, those who are desperate, those who are hopeless. Then God intervenes and God breaks in time and time again. And he does it for Hagar and he does it for Ishmael when, humanly speaking, they're going to die of thirst in the desert. And he does it despite the fact that Hagar has forgotten him. I'm not the sort of person who has very dramatic experiences with God. Um, twice in my life, I've heard God speak in a way that was very, very clear, almost as if it was an audible voice. I don't think it was an audible voice in either case, because nobody else heard it. But to me, it was as clear as if it were an audible voice. And the first time that happened was not long after I'd become a Christian, and God woke me up in the middle of the night and said... You will be baptised by the end of the summer. Well, I had decided I wasn't going to bother with baptism. Um, it wasn't compulsory. You didn't have to be baptised. And I could think of a thousand arguments why I shouldn't be baptised. And I didn't want to go through all that kind of stuff anyway. And I wasn't going to do it. But if God wakes you up and tells you something, you feel sort of obliged to do something, don't you? So I thought, I'll talk to the minister on Sunday. Get to church on Sunday. Our minister wasn't there. Oh, I'll catch him in the week. Didn't catch him in the week. Next Sunday, oh, I'll speak to him. And there just wasn't an opportunity. And although it was the most dramatic experience in my Christian life to that date, actually hearing God speak to me, within a fortnight, I convinced myself it was just imagination. Within a fortnight, I'd effectively forgotten it. I didn't have to wait 17 years like Hagar. I did it in two weeks. It was God speaking. And if I'd listened carefully, I'd have saved myself a lot of anguish and trouble because God didn't say, wake me up to say, I'd like you to think about being baptised. Or I'd like you to consider it. Or there's a good probability that you might. God said, you will be baptised by the end of the summer. And I was. Uh, I didn't look for it. It just seemed to happen that the point came where I had to give in to God and do what he wanted I wonder about you, what sort of experiences have you had with God? Maybe nothing that you think is dramatic. Maybe something that's very 
deep and significant. But do you keep those in mind? Do you remember them? Do you let them affect your ongoing relationship with God? Some people keep journals. I'm not very good at writing stuff down. But it's a good exercise just to record the things that happen between you and God. To record things that you've prayed about and the way that God has answered. Of course, it means you need to read back and not just write it and forget about it. But Hagar's challenge to us, Hagar's example to us is, remember what God has done. Remember what God has said and let that shape the future. When you're facing times that are tough and difficult decisions and things you can't sort out for yourself, remember that God has been with you in the past and God will be with you for that situation. Let's move on to Sarah, third character we're going to look at. I tell you, I would not like to have lived in Abraham's tent for those 17 years. I think it was a pretty emotionally rocky place to have been. People sometimes think that the British invented the class system. You know, upstairs, downstairs, and Downton Abbey, and all that kind of stuff. Yes, sir, no, sir, and all that kind of thing. But there is, in fact, there's been a class system in pretty well every society that's ever existed in the world in every period of history. And in ancient times, the most significant class difference was between free people and slaves. And here's this situation. Sarah is the mistress. She's free. She's the person of power and authority. And Hagar is a slave girl. She is a non-person. Slaves were not regarded as people. They were property. And yet for years, Sarah has been trying to have a child unsuccessfully. She gives Hagar to be uh, an extra wife for her husband, which was part of the culture and the custom of those days. And almost immediately, Hagar's pregnant and producing a child. And the pressure is a lot more than maybe we'd imagine today for two reasons. One is, having a child was the function of women in those days. Like it or not, it was not a feminist society. The purpose of women was to produce children and preferably a male child. And a woman who didn't, it's the second reason why it's so tense, was regarded as cursed by God. So you've got this situation where Sarah, the mistress, the free woman, the high-class woman, seems to be cursed and abandoned by God, and Hagar, the slave girl, seems to be blessed by God. And it's no wonder that Sarah snapped and tried to get Hagar driven away, even before Ishmael was born. But God sends her back. And they live together for 17 years. But when we come to this story today, I think we can fill in the gap and say that it was a time of jealousy and resentment and bitterness. Ten of those years, Sarah didn't have a child. Three of those years, she did. But something inside her just wouldn't let go. And at this feast to celebrate Isaac's weaning, she sees the teenage Ishmael mocking the toddler Isaac. The word mocking is a 
An odd word in Hebrew, the, uh, the commentators tell us. It's really, it's a play on the name Isaac. The name Isaac means he laughs. And this is the same sort of word. And it means something to do with laughter. And it can be translated at its most mild as playing with and at its most extreme as abusing. And the NIV translators have gone somewhere in the middle, mocking. We don't know exactly what was going on between these two kids, but Sarah sees it and all the insecurities, all the jealousy, all the hatred, it all comes bubbling out. And she says to Abraham once again, that woman has to go. And her son has to go with her. He's not sharing in the inheritance with my son. After the morning service, somebody was uh, talking to me and saying, do you know, the Bible says that Sarah was a godly woman. She sounds horrible to me. How can that be? Well, I think she was both. Because even people who are godly have flaws. They have something that catches them out. You can be, as far as everybody else can see, a perfect saint, and yet there can be things that just catch you that you haven't dealt with. And that's Sarah. Godly, and yet when it comes to the business about Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar, just the thing that she can't get under control. This time, God does not send them back. God says to Abraham, let them go. Abraham equips them with food and water. They go out in the desert. And God promises to bless Abraham through Isaac. It's going to make a nation that ultimately will lead to the coming of Jesus. But he's also going to make a nation out of Ishmael. And although we're not going to really look at Ishmael as a character, it's just worth saying that God blesses people that don't fit into neat boxes. Sometimes Christians get the idea that God only blesses people like us. He only blesses Christians. Or if we're very narrow, he only blesses Christians who believe the things that we believe and do the things we do. God only blesses good Baptists. Well, he doesn't. He blesses bad Baptists as well. And he blesses Methodists and he blesses Anglicans and he blesses people that are not Christians at all. He blesses people of other faiths and religions. That doesn't mean they're all right. And that they don't, can't need to come to know Jesus. But it means that God is bigger than our imagination and our understanding. God's purposes are going to be fulfilled through Isaac as far as the coming of Jesus is concerned. But there's a blessing for Ishmael. And the passage we read says, God was with the lad. The lesson, the warning to to us from Sarah is all about relationships. All about how we let the hurts, real or imagined, that other people have done to us affect us. Tony Campolo tells a story of preaching in a church where there were two sisters. They sat as far apart as they could in that church. So one in the corner back there and one in the corner over here. And for years they had not spoken to each other because of some argument in the past. They came to church, they worshipped the same God, they took communion together, they prayed together, and yet they would not speak to each other because they could not lay down that hurt. John, in his first letter, says, whoever does not love 
their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they've not seen. What it means is, it's really easy to say, I love God. It's really easy to sing it when the words come up on the screen. But actually, if you don't love other people, especially other Christians, there's no evidence at all that you really love God. Paul in Ephesians says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger. And Sarah's warning to us is this. Are the things we need to forgive and forget? Are there jealousies that we need to put aside? Are there past hurts for which we need to find forgiveness and healing? There's one overall message that comes from all three of these characters, Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. And if you only take one thing away tonight, this is the thing to take away. And it's this, God perseveres with imperfect people. I'm glad of that because God wouldn't bother with me otherwise. God perseveres with imperfect people. None of the people in the Bible who are people of God are perfect. They all have their flaws and their failings, some more than others. So don't despair, even if you do have gaps in your faith like Abraham, if there are things where as yet you've not really been able to trust God with that part of your life. Don't despair if you forget what God has done. And the way that God has been with you and has answered your prayers. Don't forget, don't despair if you are trapped by past hurts like Sarah is. By resentments and jealousies. God still loves you. God will still go on working his purpose out in you and me despite our faults and failings. God will still bless you and use you. And God can and will help you to root out the bitterness, to remember him better and to fill in the gaps. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you come across these passages that just seem to be a bit of history. There's a way of digging into it. Look at the characters. Look at what happened. Use them as Paul tells us to do, as warnings and examples. But sometimes there's another way of looking at an Old Testament passage. It's a way that's to be used with caution, but it is a a useful way. And it is this, that sometimes there is a hidden meaning in a passage in the Old Testament. It's an allegory, a figure, a type, a metaphor for something else. And that's true of this passage. There's a danger that you can just grab any old passage out of the Bible and just allegorize and say, well, this means this and this means that. And you can turn it into anything you like. And that's a dangerous way of interpreting scripture. But where the New Testament points us towards a hidden meaning, then we need to take that meaning seriously. And in the case of this particular passage that we've been looking at, the New Testament points us to another meaning. We're going to look very briefly at it. You're not going to get a second sermon on a totally different passage. But we are going to read from the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, where Paul talks about this passage in Genesis. Paul's writing to the Galatians because they're being troubled by false teachers. And this is what he says at one point. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. 
These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with a free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul says, yes, these things are historical, they actually happened, but they also have another meaning. They may may be taken figuratively. They're an allegory. One commentator describes it like this. He says, Paul means something more than an illustration. It's a spiritual truth embodied in history. God has so worked it that out of a real act, there is a spiritual truth that applies in other ways. Paul's problem was that false teachers in Galatia were saying to the Christians, you want to be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep the whole Jewish ceremonial law. That's the only way to be a Christian. And they would have used this kind of allegorical method of teaching because that was very common amongst Jewish teachers in Paul's day. And so Paul uses their own method to show the error of their ways. He says, Hagar represents the human way of doing things. Trying to earn your own salvation. Doing your own thing. Sarah is God's way of doing things. Trusting in the promise of God. And he says the difference is absolutely crucial. Because Hagar's way is the way of slavery. What does rule keeping do? When you base your whole life on a set of rules, well, it leads either to pride because you become convinced about how good you are or it leads to despair because you become convinced of how bad you are. It leads to a readiness to condemn others. The problem with rules is we're always very good at seeing how other people break the rules and not so good at seeing how we do. And it leads to a temptation to adjust the rules to suit ourselves. You know, whenever the Chancellor of the Exchequer stands up and gives a budget, and introduces some new tax, immediately accountants all around the country start looking for ways in which they can avoid and their clients can avoid paying the tax. Whenever there's a rule, we look for a way out. We try and manipulate it. We try and bend it. Sarah's way is the way of freedom. It's not doing whatever you like. There are people in... Paul's day who said that, well, you know, if we're not going to keep the rules, well, we'll just live any old sort of life that we want. And Paul says, no, that's not what we're talking about. It's about living in relationship with Jesus and letting our relationship with him and our love for him shape the way that we live so that we live the Jesus life. I've just recently done a survey in the United States and uh, 
They're trying to find out, are Christians more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the Jewish teachers who were very hot on keeping the rules, on keeping the laws. And they did this survey with quite a large number of people. And these people had 20 statements and they had to score them from one to four. And 10 of the statements reflected being like Jesus and 10 of the statements reflected on being like the Pharisees. Just listen to them. See what you would score. These are actions and attitudes like Jesus. What would you score for these? I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. In recent years, I've influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals from me. I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. I'm personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. I see God-given value in every person, regardless of their past or present condition. I believe God is for everyone. I see God working in people's lives, even when they are not following him. It is more important to help people know God, to help people know God is for them, than to make sure they know they are sinners. I feel compassion for people who are following God and doing immoral things. And then there were also ten statements that really pointed to the attitudes of the Pharisees. I tell tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins and struggles, that's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. People who follow God's rules are better than those who don't. Well, that was a survey of Christians in the United States. How many people... What percentage of Christians ticked the various options and came out as having the actions and the attitudes of God? I wonder what percentage you would think. Anybody want to guess? How many? Anybody? 35? 10? It was 14. 14% of people who claimed to be Christians actually made the choices that said, I want to live like Jesus. Now, the survey was open to anybody who said they were a Christian, whether they went to church or not. When they adjusted it for those who were evangelicals, those who were committed Christians who claimed to have had a life-changing experience with Jesus, the number showing Jesus' actions and attitudes increased. And it went up from 14 all the way to... 23%. It's not a high figure, is it? Hey, and we could do the rule thing, and we could say, hey, but that's Americans, and we're better than Americans, aren't we? We're, We're better Christians than they are. But that's not what God's saying. What God's saying is, do you want freedom, or do you want slavery? Do you want to live by rules? Do you want to live by how good you are and doing your own thing? Or do you want to live in relationship with Jesus, trusting in him? 
So let's learn from the examples of the Old Testament. But let's not make it into a set of rules and conditions. Let's learn from their relationship. The, the key thing in Abraham's life, yeah, he had his faults and he had his failures, but he was getting to know God more and more. That's what God wants for us. God is perfect. The Lord Jesus is perfect. But he loves imperfect people like us. And he's got a message for every one of us tonight. I'm going to finish with this. Just listen to it because this is Jesus speaking to you and asking for your response tonight. As you think about the faults and failures in your life, as you think about the challenges, as you think about where you're going with Jesus, this is what he says. Come unto me, all you who are weary or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the invitation from Jesus tonight. If you don't know him, start a relationship with him now. If you do, move on. Take his yoke upon you. Become more and more his and learn to let his life shine through you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that people in the Bible were real people and they had all the problems and faults and failings that we have. But Father, we thank you that you love them and you love us despite our faults and failings. But Father, we don't want to stay where we are. We don't want to remain trapped and in slavery. Nor do we want to get into a set of rules and trying to live it our own way or according to somebody else's rule book. But we want to have a deeper and a fuller relationship with Jesus. We want to know him better day after day after day. We want to see him formed in us more day after day. Transform from one degree of glory to another. Will you help us consciously and willingly to take the yoke of Jesus upon us, to become his servants, and to accept that light burden, that easy way, that rest that he gives us when we walk in the way that he's planned for us. In Jesus' name, amen.